What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I am Mark DeVoe. And I am Mark Stan. Today's show is sponsored by our wonderful patrons. We have two new ones this week, so please raise your glasses and be standing for Jane Raven and Jack Logan, a hearty welcome to you both. Thank you all so much for your support because we really genuinely could not keep this podcast going without your wonderful support. So thank you to you and a good day to you, Mr. DeVoe. How are you, sir? A very good day to you, Mr. Stay. I'm doing absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliantly. How's how's the last couple of weeks been for you? Because I know there's been all kinds of interesting things happening in your world. It's been great. Uh, I'm living the dream, mate. I genuinely am living the dream. We wrapped filming on the little people, which we talked to a bit about on um, on the pod, on the live show last week, which was great. Uh, had a cover reveal for the Crow Folk, which is the first book in the Witches of Woodville series uh, that's being published by Simon and Schuster in uh, February 2021. Uh, so rewind, rewind, rewind. <laughs> You don't just drop in as a, yes, as a little yes, snip, dip, dip, snip, dip. Come on, let, let's just let's just rewind a bit. So, a book reveal for a new book, which is being published, yeah, cover, which is being published by yeah, Simon and Schuster. Yeah. This is a tell us about this. Mm. This is exciting mm. news. I've known about it for a while, and I haven't been able to say anything, which is why we can't just let this pass. Tell me about what ha- what's happened. <laughs> Fill us in. Everyone wants to know. Well, um, I've uh, the end of magic. Well, you know, I love the end of magic. Got great views and everything, but it, it needed to be part. I think. I think the big one of the biggest lessons I've learned on this podcast is you need a series to make any money at this game. You need a series to because uh, readers love it, publishers love it. Uh, you you know your your book one is the launch pad. Books two, three, four, five, six, seven, or whatever. So I couldn't really do a sequel to The End of Magic because Unbound have first dibs on that and I just don't don't want to go down the crowdfunding road again. It was hard work, frankly. <laughs> and uh, so I've had an idea for a, a series mulling around for years, years and years and years, and I finally put it together into uh, a series called The Witches of Woodville. And it's set in, initially set in 1940 during the Second World War, just as the Battle of Britain is, is kicking off, uh, in a small village in Kent. It's about a young girl called Faye Bright, who's always felt a little bit different. And then she discovers a book left by her late mother. And it's a book with, um, well, it has a recipe for jam roly-poly, but it also has spells, incantations, rituals, all kinds of magical stuff. And she's like, wait, my mother was a witch? Uh, So it's about her coming of age. She's a young woman who wants to, she's 17. She wants to be useful. She wants to 
do her bit for the war effort. She's been turned down by everyone, you know, that she wants to join the Home Guard and they've said no. So she decides she can use magic. And and the series will go on. It'll be her and two other witches in the village who will be, while the war is going on, they'll be combating supernatural enemies from below, if you like. And this first one features a scarecrow called Pumpkinhead who's kind of terrifying. And <laughs> um, it's been a ton of fun to write. It's been Brilliant. really, really good fun to write. And uh, yeah, I, I, my agent, uh, Ed, put it out there. And we've got uh, a three-book deal with Simon & Schuster UK. Wow. So um, it's very exciting. But I've got a German book deal. It's going to be published in Germany. Wow. Russian book deal, which what's is it going to be? What's it going to be called in Germany and Russia? You know you got... I don't know. I don't know yet. But, <laughs> I want to uh, see I the covers. Wait. Can't wait for the uh, yeah the covers and the translations and the different titles Fantastic. and everything. Oh, that's the one amazing. Place, one place we haven't cracked is uh, the US and Canada. So uh, really? I'm afraid, Mister D, you, you're going to have to order your copy from the book depository, who offer world free worldwide purchase and packing, uh, available for pre order now. So yeah, we're still um, waiting to crack uh, North America. I'm I'm the Cliff Richard of uh, of book publishing. I can't crack North America. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic! No, that's such so exciting, and I know I did see that you did a cover reveal uh, on Facebook, the Crow Folk. If you want to go and have a look at Mark's, in fact, why don't we put it in the show notes of this this week's show so people can see the cover? I think that would be a an appropriate thing. But this is really exciting because we like let's go back all the way to the very beginning where I think it was episode four where we started learning about the importance of series. It's only taken you four years, mate. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm a slow study, you know, as you know. (laughs) Something like something to do maybe with doing a podcast, actually, you know, uh, I mean, incredible. I mean, what's amazing, though, what's amazing is I love the fact that you finish filming, like literally the week you finish filming the movie, now you're announcing the three book deal. This is absolutely living the dream. And it's 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 no coincidence, I don't think, that all these things are all coming in. But it also, again, for everyone out there listening to this and thinking, how does Mark do it? It's I see how he does it, and it's absolute perseverance and hard work. That's it. I mean, well, and obviously uh, talent, but perseverance. A, a certain and hard amount work. of luck. A certain uh, well, amount of luck as well. Well, you know, but, you know yeah, what? Yeah. They, you, you know, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Right? Yeah, there is a bit of that. Mark there is Twain's a bit of that, I think. Yeah, yeah. So I think yeah. it's absolutely brilliant. I'm so chuffed for you, and I'm so excited to think. Wow, here's another element of the podcast. Here we we can now go on the the series. Mm. um like documentation you know what happens when you write in a book and really go into detail of that so if you're out there you know and you want to emulate what mark's what mark's done getting kind of a major book deal with with a series then stick with us because we'll talk a little bit about this journey that mark's going to be going on um have you already started to write book two it's pretty much finished. It's pretty much finished oh my yeah. goodness man. yeah I, I got well if that was the book I was writing the 200 day a word challenge thing at the beginning of the year because when covid hit i kind of you know mm. couldn't write anything for a couple of weeks and then i thought no i need i need to do this book uh funnily enough i started with some short stories because i'm gonna set, we can talk about this i'm gonna set out a specific website for the series and newsletter and i'm giving away short stories so i wrote those first and then once i'd got into the rhythm again i just hit the novel and much as claire did with her book, I just I just hit the ground running and mm. pants the whole thing. And um, it's, uh, 
you know, it's I've had a few beta readers give it a kicking. I've got a sensitivity reader reading it for me at the moment because I, I've got it's set in World War Two. It's you know still set in the UK, but I've got some uh, young Jewish characters in there, Kinder transport children. You know, the children who fled the Blitzkrieg and came to stay in the UK. And I'm, I've got a, a sensitivity reader basically reading it for me to make sure I. You know, there's no colossal faux pas or anything like anything I've got wrong, fact-checking it for me kind of thing. So once it's back from her, I'm going to ping it off to my agent, see what he thinks, and then um, and then off we go for book two. And then I've got lots of lots of ideas for book three. But I've not made huge notes. I'm, I'm all about the pencing at the moment. Wow. <laughs> so this is officially, this, this book two is officially a 200-word-a-day challenge book. It came out of the... Absolutely. Yeah. No Brilliant. question whatsoever. No question Fantastic. whatsoever. Yeah. Well, if you want to, if you want to find out what that's all about, if you're, you may be on day two. If you're listening to this on the day this publishes, you may be on day two of NaNoWriMo and wondering what have I let myself in for. If you're thinking, how am I going to do this, or if you want something which is more achievable um, and I think more kind of sustainable as well over the whole year, try the 200 word a day challenge. We've got the five day challenge up at the moment, which means you can try it for five days and see if you can write a thousand words in a week. Which for some people might. You know, some people might think, oh, it's simple. But for most people, that's actually a big ask. And it's about getting the habit. So pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash BXP2020 if you're interested in finding out more about that. But just going back to something you just said, that's a new a new word for many people on the podcast, sensitivity reader. Um, mm. Give us some examples of, of when writers might get a sensitivity reader. I mean, you've given us a great one there um, about. Well, uh, we did, we did, we did an episode a long time ago. We spoke to an author called Danielle Clayton who uh, does this, and basically, if you're writing outside of your own sphere of experience. I mean, sensitivity. She actually said, "I don't like the term sensitivity reader because it, it tends to suggest people are being oversensitive, and it, it plays into a lot of the negative uh, connotations about people. Oh, they're too sensitive, kind of thing." And you know, but actually, I think it's just part of your due diligence as a writer. If you're writing outside of your own experience, get someone who has that experience to look at it and go, "Oh, actually, we don't call it that, or we don't do that, or this is kind of offensive, or this is a bit wrong, or whatever." So. For this, I've you know I did my research into Kinder Transport Children, you know, uh, but you know that's just you can only do so much. So I'm giving it to someone who you know has uh, some experience of that, who's going to read it and just say, uh, you know, maybe think about rephrasing this or blah blah blah. So you know, if you're if even if you know as as simple as if you are a man writing a female character, make sure one of your beta readers is a female, is a woman who can say. No, no, don't do that. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, and vice versa, you know. Um, I know people who, if you're writing a cop detective thriller, you know, find a friendly police officer who will read it through. If, you, if you're writing a legal thriller, anything like that, anything that's outside your your uh, usual experience, it, I think it's part of your duty and due diligence to just get someone to look at it and give you a, a quick rundown. And um, there are people who, I mean, I'm using a paid service. So I'm paying this person to do this. I found in the past, you know, if it's someone who works in, you know, a police officer or something like that, buy them lunch, buy them a pint, you know. For back to reality, um, you remember we were talking about comas and stuff like that. I met with a nurse who works at a guy's hospital in London and I bought a lunch at a pub up the road, you know, and uh, put the recorder on the table and she gave us all kinds of wonderful information, most of which we didn't use, 
but it was just part of our, our research and due diligence. So it's, um, I think it's, uh, you know, it's one of the things you should definitely consider. I love it. And I hear all the fantasy authors out there screaming, saying, I just can't find someone who's slain a dragon, though. <laughs> They're just not looking hard enough. You well, are, I tell you what, are you, I tell right? You what, I tell you what fantasy authors do, though. Uh, so, you, you, again, going back a few episodes, Ed MacDonald, you know, talking about working with swords and sword play and fighting and stuff like that. You know, he's he that's within his experience. And you'll have, uh, you know, weaponry, things like that. You'll find people who will be able to give you uh, an expert opinion on that, which is really, really handy. Because I tell you what, you get weaponry wrong, uh, people people notice and they'll tell you you know so yeah. it's um you want to you want to think about those things although the one pe- the people i don't have any because you see it's an imdb where people go well he's using a nine milliliter glock and that only actually has 16 rounds and they shot 17 rounds that sort of thing i'm very happy to upset gun nuts i would, I would almost <laughs> go to lakes to deliberately put the wrong information in just to wind them up as long as oh, they don't shoot me that's brilliant <laughs> Brilliant. Well, that's that's great. That's great advice, actually. And I'm sure a lot of people are thinking, oh, I never even thought about that before. And um, I must say that if you do find anyone who's slightly obsessed about anything, chances are they'll be more than happy to geek out with you for an hour over it because they, it's their passion. They love it. I mean, I remember you talking about the chap who drove the double-decker bus as well for Back to Reality. Do you remember? Yes, you yes, yes, yes. Them, right? that, that was great. Oh, God, yeah, that was Andy. That was that was his um, uh, stepfather, I think, gave us all that advice because he'd driven a proper Routemaster bus. And I think the other thing is people are so sick of seeing it done wrong on TV and film. They are only too happy to set people right, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely worth doing. And you, you'll get little nuggets of information out of it that will only enrich your writing. So it's always worth doing brilliant stuff if you enjoy this kind of banter and chat and 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 expert advice um i'm going to encourage you to pop along to the academy the bestseller academy because we are opening the doors again folks on the first week in january 2021 so if your new year's resolution this year is going to be about finally writing that book finishing that book dusting off that old book that you've had in that drawer for 5, 10, 15 years even, come along to the Academy because we are opening the doors. There's going to be limited space. But if you want to get in, I highly recommend you get over to the website now and get yourself on the uh, VIP kind of wait list. To do that, you go to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. That's academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. If you're half thinking about it, if you're a quarter thinking about it, get your name on that list so that you get first... Uh, first uh, request if you want to actually sign up and um, in the academy one of the things that we do do which has been so much fun Mark isn't it is this coaching Mark does craft coaching and I do life coach um, coaching for writers and the kind of questions that we get I mean we've been doing this podcast now for over four years and I'm still getting new questions (laughs) there's nothing That we will never, ever cover everything that has to be covered about writing. And there's always something to learn. And what I'm actually also loving is the fact that we're learning that there's always something to relearn or remember stuff that we learned, you know, five years ago. We forget or we need to freshen up. And so it's about keeping the keeping talking about weaponry. It's about keeping the axe sharp. And I think that's really one of the biggest things that we're finding with the coaching that's great so you've had a blast haven't you mark you've done a couple of sessions now on the coaching and uh, amazing questions coming up they're great fun and they're such a great bunch and if you you know 
join us in the new year for when we open the doors again. You'll be joining this bunch as well. And they're fantastic. They're just absolutely brilliant. One of the great joys of this is getting to know these writers, seeing their goals and dreams and ambitions and seeing them evolve right in front of our eyes. And, you know, uh, talking, having these great Zoom sessions, these one-on-one sessions, you know, it's it's terrific. I, I love it. It's been one of the great joys. It's been great. Here's actually a little preview. This was the coaching session we did yesterday. These were some of the questions that came up. How do I deal with fatigue as a writer? You know, I'm, a, I'm a, a young parent with a young baby. How do I deal with fatigue? Another question about reducing burnout. And uh, some and one, one of my favorite questions of the session was perfection and this idea of trying to chase the perfect plot and the perfect structure in the first draft of a book. And we talked in detail about the challenges of that and why perfectionism can actually kill your novel if you're too much of a perfectionist. And I know so many writers are. It's part of what comes with the with the territory. But we were talking about being a near perfectionist and that was a brilliant thing. Another, another thing about, lots about confidence, people lacking confidence, people feeling that their writing just isn't good enough and it never will be. Another one about writing, how do you pull yourself out of the darkness after... Uh, after writing so the conflict in the story doesn't come home with you what a brilliant mm-hmm. question though how it kind of how writing can actually inter interlace with your with your everyday life and uh, another one which i thought was brilliant about somebody said how can i how can i shake the guilt of spending time on my own thing it's like this writing was almost this guilty pleasure when they feel that they should be you know being there for their family or doing you know money earning hours and it just goes on and on. So if, if these are the kind of questions that you want answers to, we're recording all of these coaching sessions. So when you when you apply and if you get accepted into the academy in January, you'll also get access to all of these previous coaching sessions that we've got. And you can kind of go through and, you know, pick out things which are really relevant to you as well. So, yeah, loving it. Absolutely loving it. Now, Mr. Stay, we have... Uh, I think one of your favourite guests of the year I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a stab at. What a wonderful way to start the fourth year of uh, of the podcast. And I, again, as I say in the interview, I don't know why it's taken me so long to get uh, Sally on the show, but this is Sally Gardner. Sally, I got to know when I worked at Orion, and she's such a joy. She's such a wonderful human being. Uh, she's an award-winning novelist who sold more than two and a half million books worldwide. They've been translated into 22 languages. That puts a German and a Russian deal into perspective, doesn't it? She writes for children and adults, and her new book, The Snow Song, and I've got a copy of it here, and it's absolutely gorgeous. Uh, It's her third adult novel. It's an exploration of toxic masculinity and feminism set against a foreboding setting. Uh, It shows her real talent for historical fiction with magical realism as well. And she is a magical, she's a magical author and a magical person. And you folks are in for such, such a treat because we we talk about, we talk about the difference between writing for children and adults. There's a wonderful anecdote about how Churchill nearly being hit by a car uh, inspired one of her books, how working in theatre helped her as a writer, how costume can work for character and finding your voice. This is, again, sit down, get a cuppa, take notes. This is this is going to be a real treat. Brilliant. So let's have a listen with Mark chatting with none other than the wonderful Sally Gardner. Sally Gardner, welcome to the Best Sell Experiment. How are you today? I'm really well. I'm really well, yeah. Wonderful. Well, I, I don't know why it's taken me so long to get you on the podcast. I honestly don't know because this is – let me just tell you something because um, just this morning uh, I was chatting to my daughter who's 20 now and I said, oh, I've got Sally Gardner 
um, I'm interviewing her later on, and immediately she leapt in with an anecdote, which I think sums up your books brilliantly. She was talking about she was reading uh, the book Lucy Willow in class, right? She should have been paying attention. And she said, I've just got one more chapter. I just want to get to the end. She must have been like 10, 10 years old or something. And the teacher sort of snapped her and said, put that book away. What did I just say? So Emily put the book down, recited exactly back to the teacher what she just said to the class and then went back and finished the book. <laughs> that's, how, that's how good your books are, Sally. <laughs> good. Good. So yeah, it's it's just it's just amazing. My 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 son, he loves um what's the one with the wolf? Tinder. Tinder, he absolutely loves that. And uh I Coriander is my absolute favourite. So it's it's um uh, having had the joy of knowing known you, I I'm kicking myself for not getting you on sooner. But it's a celebration because you have a new book coming, The Snow Song, which feels incredibly relevant because it's about a woman who loses her voice as the snow starts to fall in this fear of strangers, of talking to strangers. Tell us about The Snow Song. Well, um, it's quite interesting because for me, I didn't really know where it was going until we got to lockdown. And then suddenly everybody stopped putting pressure on me. There were no events. Nobody wanted a little bit to give to a I don't know, a fair, it, it, all of it stopped. And I just walked up my stairs every day with my cup of coffee to a mountain village and to a girl called Edith. And I would sit down every morning and go, all right, Edith, what are we doing today? And in a way, the story began to take on a real meaning because this is about a village that gets very isolated. And it's about a girl who has no agency in this village because it's run by men. It's a patriarchal society. And she, her father, who's a drunk and really quite a tragic figure, um, as in um, Hock with the butcher, and the butcher wants to marry her. And it's her power lies in the loss of this voice. And in her silence, women begin to tell their secrets to her. And they, by telling their secrets, realise that they are compliant with the tyranny that has gone on in this village. It's a fable. It's, it's wonderful. It's magical. And that sense of isolation, obviously you're writing it in, you know, you're writing it in lockdown. Did, how... How did that feed into the story? Is, is this a story you could have written a year ago when you're able to just walk out and pop down to the shops? No. But the, the difference would have been then that I would have gone to Romania and I would have gone to Transylvania, which I was planning to do. So in a way, this had to take a leap into my imagination much more. I had to trust my knowledge of where I was going. And I was listening to one of your podcasts with Michelle Paver, and I was thinking, oh, she gets to go to all the places that all my trips to go to Transylvania and go up the you know, Carpathian Mountains are all gone. They're really tragic, really. So I, I've had to do it from my knowledge of isolation and my knowledge of mountains that I have. And then I watched a lot. Of, oh, yeah, that's the other thing I did. because. <laughs> I really watched a lot of things on snow. So I, I'd had slow snow. You know, you get these slow videos that go on in the yeah. background. So I did slow snow, which is quite good. So you're writing away and you've got crack. 
you know, just slow snow going on, which I really like that. And the other one I really liked was that I had to do an avalanche because an avalanche plays a part in this book. So I, I started watching avalanches. I got so claustrophobic because, you know, these people have he- things on their heads and they're in the snow and they're going, I don't think I'm going to survive. You're going, ah! And, you know, it really <laughs> is terrifying. Um, and so that was very good. That was very good just to see what an avalanche can do. Because you sort of, I don't know about you, but, you think it's quite gentle, you know. I mean, it may be a bit violent, but then when it got to a village, it would all be sort of a bit like, ooh. And actually, when it gets to the village, the houses explode. <laughs> the force of this just explodes them. And it's just extraordinary sort of thing to... Um, anyway, so thank you, YouTube. Bless YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea of writing to the gentle drift of snow, in the background, we're, we're always, we're always. You can watch for hours. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, it's these slow TV. This slow. Somebody put me onto it. It was so good. Yeah, and then uh, they what? do the thaw. They do the thaw one as well, so you can actually in real time. So while I was writing, I thought, okay, it's uh, oh, it's beginning to thaw. Oh. <laughs> Well, technically, that counts as research. That's totally research. That's fantastic. That is wonderful. Uh, and it's um, like uh, you're writing for adults in, in the Snow Song, and you've written for all age groups, from early readers right up to adults. How aware are you of the change in tone and voice that you take on when you write for a specific readership? Well, I, I think with adults... I, I don't have to hold back so much. I don't care about their sensitivities in a way. <laughs> and, and that may sound really bad, but for children, I am, I am still a guardian. I think all people who write for children, they don't need to patronise. In fact, they don't need to teach anything, but they do need to be guardians in, a, in the sense of protecting a child from or helping a child see something. I think it's a very, very different different role. It's a very difficult role. But, I mean, and people will say to you, well, you did Maggot Moon, Sal, and that was very brutal. And it was brutal, but I still was conscious of my brutality, if I can put it like that. Where when I write for adults, they go, oh, that can go to the wind. Um, so that that is the difference I have. But... Preaching is not one thing I ever want to do. And someone said, is there a moral in your book? So there's no moral in my stories. I don't want a moral. No, I think kids see through that as well. I mean, adults see through it, but kids definitely do. Kids know when they're being condescended to and then preached to, don't they? Definitely. They don't like it at all. (laughs) They walk away. I don't blame them. I'm with them. You know, it's like when parents say, and the children can leave the table. I'm always the first down. Oh, no, sorry, I'm a grown-up. <laughs> <laughs> Snow Song is like a lot of your fiction in that it has a historical setting. What was it that attracts you to the past so much in your writing? Well, it started really with what happened in children's writing was because you ended up when things got PC crazy where you couldn't actually take a child into the wood without a social worker. And it really meant children having great adventures was really, really tricky. You know, you had to put them into a magical world. You had to do, you had to 
somehow divorce them from reality so that they could have all these extraordinary things happen to them. And I felt really relieved to go back to the past. And I am quite passionate about the past in the sense that I don't think you should alter it. You, you, you've got to stay true to it. You can make a fantasy of it. That's fine and dinky dandy. But if you're using it, you've got to stay true to it in a way that you... I worry about the I worry about people who use history because I think now it's been getting more and more laissez-faire, if I can put it like that. And people are molding it to do stuff that it most probably wasn't ever going to do. I think you've got to be very, very cautious with it. But I do love it. And also you can't make up the stories that are in it. That the, the you know, if you really study history and you go back and read what people have written, you know, what I call the sort of handprint from the past, it's so riveting. You, you just look at these stories and think, wow, I couldn't have made that up. That is even better than anything I could have imagined. Because one of your stories was inspired by Churchill nearly being run over, wasn't it? Didn't you read a nugget of him? Oh, yes, that was in Maggot Moon. But, well, that was just, I, I love the what-if histories. I don't know, have you ever read them, Mark? The what-if? Oh, I love that. Yeah, I love I love, I love them. Them. Absolutely fabulous. Well, there's there's one story which... which uh, um, he, he was in. Um, he was crossing the road in in New York. I think it was Sixth Avenue, and it had been made the wrong way. He, he was very dyslexic, like me, and I think he looked the wrong way. Uh, anyway, a taxi coming off duty bashed into him and missed killing him by two centimeters of fat. And I love the idea that there's just two centimeters of fat that stand in the way of us having Churchill and not having Churchill. And he wrote to his doctor to ask his doctor why he had survived. And his doctor said, sir, your rotund stomach took the impact of the hit. If you had been two centimetres thinner, you'd be dead. My goodness. So all that scotch, uh, you know, probably saved his life <laughs> and, and the West, Western civilization. <laughs> Let's talk about your career, because I'm absolutely fascinated by, by your career, because uh, you mentioned your dyslexia. And I know you've talked about this a lot, uh, but you didn't learn to read or write till you were 14. Uh but you you were you worked you you still think very visually, and you worked in theatre as a as a set designer. So how how did that working in theatre how did that feed in to storytelling? Well, I have to say theatre was the making of me in a way. I um, I learned so much about story in theatre. Mm. I mean, the thing about writers is they never get to see when their audience actually keels over and drops the book and goes, oh, all right, I'll pick it up tomorrow. Maybe not. But in theatre, you do actually see that happen. And I work with living playwrights who wrote a wonderful piece and thought, this is the moment, this is the moment. And, and the whole of the audience have just gone to sleep in the front row. And there's no getting away from it. You know, you know when story dies. And it, it's not only going to sleep, it's a feeling in the theatre where it just goes, donk, dead. And I remember years ago when I wasn't, I wasn't working as I was going to see a show. And this is quite a good story about theatre. And it went on very long. It had lots of songs. And the designer was called John Napier. And the director was Trevor Nunn. And they came up to me and they said, it's a disaster, isn't it? Fucking disaster. 
And uh, Trevor, uh, Trevor Nunn said, well, that's my career gone. And John Napier said, well, we'll be closed within a week. And I said to them, I thought it was got a lot of possibility, got great tunes and it would go well, but it just needed tightening. And he said, no, it's, it's dead in the water, Sal. And that was Le Miserables. <laughs> just a bit of tightening. Just, just a, a little. Tightening. Yeah, that's all it needed. <laughs> but it, 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 the thing about it is, you know, if anyone knew how you could write a bestseller or what made a great musical, we'd all be doing it. The thing is, there is no recipe out there. One has to stay true to the gut of creativity that's in you, I think. Absolutely. I think it's the only way to do it. Mm. No, absolutely. Now, you've talked very passionately about finding your voice as a writer. Was there a moment where you felt that you you had a voice? Because uh, it's your first editor, Judith Elliott, she, she was keen on voice as well, wasn't she? Oh, she was the making of me. She was just the making of me. There's quite a funny story about Coriander, which I do love this story. So we were in Eastbourne in the days where we had, you know, proper publishing events. And we were all staying in the hotel. And Judith didn't drink. And they put in a bottle of champagne, which, you know, no more happens. But in our rooms, there was a bottle of champagne. And she drank the lot, thinking it was lemonade. <laughs> we went down to supper. as <laughs> and in front of Ian Rankin and I think Peter Roach, who um, ran, was head of Orion, she said, Sally, is that right? And I, you know that thing as a child, you want the floor to open and die. And that was the moment I wanted the floor to open and die. And I thought, oh, God, oh, God, how embarrassing. And, um, and the next morning I went to see her and she was in a terrible state. And I, and I thought, she's forgotten. Thank God she's forgotten. And I was creeping out of the room and she said, Sally, I went, yes. She said, you are going to write the novel. And it was a very strange thing happened to me because I, I, I had an idea. I had a vision. And it was just one vision that came to me for this book. And it came completely fully made. And it was a little girl. And she was standing at the top of a wooden staircase. And um, to the right of her was a window, which was latticed. But it was slightly open in the wind. And it had obviously banged and woken her up. And I knew the river was outside because I could sort of smell the river. And it was a, lot, a big staircase. And she walked all the way down. And at the bottom of the staircase, I thought, OK, where are you going to go now? Where are you going to go? And I said, oh, there's a door. and there was a light coming from the door and I thought, are we going to push this open? And she pushes it open and there's a man at the desk and it's a big desk and he's got his hands on his head and in front of him is a box and it's a wooden casket box and from the box, light is shining out. And she goes to the desk and I looked at this little girl and I said, okay, what now? What are you going to say? And she says, is that my mother's fairy shadow? And he closes the box. <laughs> and I thought, wow, where are you? And I went to foils of all things. 
And I was looking at the history department. I met a man at the bottom shelf of a bookcase. And um, I asked him, when did we have religious sort of madness in our country, fundamentalism in our country? Did we ever have it? Did we ever have a sort of craziness? He thought about it for a long time. It's a really interesting question. I said, well, do you know the answer to it? He said, yes, I do, my dear. I do. We had it under Oliver Cromwell. We had the Looney Tunes. And that was what I've been looking for. And as I was going to see Judith about another project altogether, the word coriander came to me. And I went into that office that day and I went, and she went, you've got a contract. Stop what you're doing. You're going to do that. And that was I, Coriander. Which is my my favourite book of yours. I just I just adore that book. And what's amazing, listening to you talk about that, you came to that book. You're not scribbling notes. You're thinking visually. You're, you're, you're taking us through that, going up the stairs into the room, opening the box. That whole thing is completely visual. Which And that's how you think, isn't it? You're, you're visuals first, aren't you? I'm totally visuals. In my head, if I can't see it when I'm writing it, I don't bother with it. So if I got myself into a pickle with writing, I think, oh, wow, I can't see their feet on the ground. I can't see the room. I can't see what they're doing now. So no, that's all written wrong. So I I know when I can, uh, you know, I I like books that are grounded. I like people, I like to know the shoes. (laughs) I really need the shoes. I need, even if I don't write them, I need to know in my heart what those blooming shoes look like. Because, too many characters can float otherwise. They just end up never grounded. And you know it in a way. Oh, look, she floated out of a room. Uh, and you, you're not meant to do that. That's not good. You must connect to the, to the gravity of what you're trying to do, I feel, in your writing. That's brilliant. That's that's such no. That's such a great image. I love that. I love that. I, I think Alec Guinness used to, used to say he used to get the character when he put the shoes on. Well, you see, that that came from theatre as well, because in theatre, shoes were everything to me. And I remember um, doing a costume for one gentleman and I gave him a red heel and I filed the shoe down. So it had a, 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 he said, what have you done to my shoes? I said, I think I've given you, I want you to walk with a bit of a lopsided. He said, it's not up to you. I said, no, I know, but I think it will suit the character. I was about 22 at the time. And he took them away and he said, well, you're going to have to fucking buy me a new pair of shoes. <laughs> I said, well, and do you know, I didn't. He wore them. <laughs> it was a bit arrogant of me. Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. There is some, uh, you know, I've known a few people who do costume and they're, they're always right. They're always right. They always it's it's and that's always the one bit of theatre and film that I can never quite get my head around. You know how costume can accentuate a character, but um, there is a there is a there is a magic to it, isn't there? There's one other story I tell you about that, which is quite funny as well. I was doing the Mikado in Denmark in a beautiful, beautiful theatre in the Royal Opera, and they had like Morecambe and Wise, but he was the great comedian of the day, playing Nankipu. and I had done it. I'd done him in kabuki trousers. You know the very and I'd give them a lot of extra leg room, in fact, so the silk would roll. And I think it was about, uh, well, about 12 foot of silk, extra silk he had on his feet. And I put shoes in them so he could have so control over it. 
Anyway, he came on the stage and he was livid. He said, what am I supposed to work in this? How am I supposed to, I don't want to work in this. Who's the designer? Get me the designers. I'm standing there. He said, well, you can cut it all off now. And he is in such a temper that he kicks his leg and the fabric rolled out onto the stage and it was show and tell where all the directors and everyone. And there was just burst of laughter. And this is meat to this man. And you could just see, he heard the laughter and he went, I'll go, go back, back. And then <laughs> and everyone was, oh, 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 and he went on stage. He came off stage. He said, you know, these trousers? I said, yes. He said, well, do you think you could add on to them? I said, no. I was 24 years old. God, mm-hmm. that, was, that was some... That was some gig, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's talk about your dyslexia. I'm sure you're bored to death of talking about it because it's it comes up in every interview. But I am fascinated by this. You and folks, I'm going to put a link to this in the uh, in the show notes of the podcast because your book Maggot Moon, which was a Costa winner, it was a Carnegie winner. You produced a video for that because that was I think it's the first book where you wrote a dyslexic character. And there's a wonderful video that shows you how you experienced dyslexia which is letters moving around on the page because most people think oh they just can't spell or they just can't read but the the letters move around the page and i'll, I'll put a link in the show notes folks so you can see this because it is it's it's really eye-opening but yeah your your dyslexia was was quite extreme wasn't it was- well i say i couldn't read till i was 14 which is true i couldn't comprehend but i have got letters uh, my I, my mother unfortunately died two years ago and i got sent some of the letters i sent her which seemed sort of manageable um but i i you know they look they're, they're written by a five-year-old but i never actually standish treadwell's quite interesting because in maggot moon because i never ever said he was dyslexic i never ever mentioned that but that came out and the thing that i wanted so much to do is because for a lot of dyslexic people it's visual it's a, a visual world we live in and we see things differently and I, want, I didn't want to do spelling because spelling is just like the tip of the iceberg. I mean, in a way, it isn't what sunk the Titanic. It's what was under the water. And no one's looking at that with dyslexia. Everyone is looking at the top irritating bit. Oh, disorganized, uh, difficult with spelling, uh, gets your left and right wrong. And I think there's so much more to it that has not been investigated and not been discovered. I... I think possibly there is a sort of genius bit in it as well. But it, it is a tangle. It is a huge knot that a child goes to school with. And it's how that is unknotted. And whether that's unknotted with kindness or whether that's unknotted with cruelty will affect the rest of their days. And unfortunately, so little is understood about it. And still to this day, teachers, bless their cotton socks, only get about two weeks to do anything on dyslexia. And it's a much bigger subject than just Jane can't spell. It's mm. not about Jane can't spell. And um, I, I was quite interesting, a friend of mine was telling me about Scott Fitzgerald, who I love, it's one of my right. And he was dyslexic. And his editor apparently was despairing on the last page of The Great Gatsby. He thought, oh, I can't go on with this. And he leaves in a word, I think it's orgasmic. The future is orgasmic. And he had no idea what that meant. But he just thought, well, fuck it. I'm leaving that word in. I've had enough. There we go. 
<laughs> so in your day-to-day -day writing, how do you work? What are your strategies for, for writing uh, with dyslexia? When I listened to your podcast, I was so impressed with all these writers that sort of have a routine. I was really impressed. I, I just write. I have days where it goes better. I have days when it doesn't. I'm a workaholic. So as my do you can see, my dog now wants to go out for a walk. I mean, it's about the only time we, you know. So I, I write. I, I write till I can't write anymore, really. I have a, I suppose I do have a set amount of words to get. I think a thousand, but then I won't keep hardly any of them. I mean, if I keep 250, I'm on a lucky day. I mean, I really, I, I, I would call my work tapestry. I sort of do a bit that I like. I, I write in color. So it's all very do 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 do. And then I work it and work it and work it. So I'm happy. And I still will have missed out all the little works. I have a real blank where it comes to sort of sows and does and things have got a bit better for me because now we've got Grammarly and we've got the thing that you, you know, writing pro or whatever. And there's, um, you know, there is speech things you can do into thing. It is better, but still, to be really honest with you, I need to have someone to get me a clean script. I can't, I can't produce a clean script. You said you write in colour. Do you mean... Literally, the typeface, the font is is a, is a colour. Yeah. It's quite a clever idea. She's a really good idea. Because I write in the morning, let's say, I just choose a colour, I'll do dark or brown or whatever. And then I write all morning in that. And I go have lunch and I'll start in blue. And then at least I've sort of got some idea of where I was in my thinking about, um, you know, and I can see one is a bit more unconnected to the other. And I say, oh, I've got two ideas there. And then I can, what I call, unthread it. You know, like you, you pull it, pull it apart. You, you, yeah, unthread it a bit. And and you find, I find, often I write very densely because I write for children. I can write densely. And then it's a matter of just literally teasing it, teasing it, teasing it, and thinking, oh wow, oh wow, there was a lot in here. And that's what I do. Oh, that's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. What's what's the name of your dog? Sally? Oh, my dog is called Sparrow. She's the one-eyed wonder of the Western world. Oh, I mean, she, viewers, I'm seeing this on video and Sparrow is absolutely adorable, but needs to go for a walk. So I think, unfortunately, we're going to have to let you go. But Snow Song, readers, is available now. And uh, it, it's launching in a strange time, Sally. Normally, I'm sure you'd be going on a, a book tour and signing at bookshops and stuff like that. So... Um, I mean, what are your plans for the book? Will, will you be out and about? Will we be able to catch you elsewhere? I just fingers crossed that this goes all right. And it, it, I think it, I hope it does. I, I'm very, very proud of this book. I, it's new. I've done two other grown-up books, but this one I really feel I finally found my feet with. And I, yeah, fingers crossed it does well. It's a lot of luck as well on that yeah well look i've got everything crossed i hope you and sparrow have a nice walk it's been an absolute joy speaking to you again and let's not leave it so long next time hope to speak to you again soon that would be lovely mark you know i've it, dyslexia is one of those things which is a silent struggle that so many people have to deal with and it's so amazing to hear sally talking about it in the way that she did because i I, I knew more than the kind of stereotypical view of it, but mm, I didn't yeah, realise. Yeah. 
I didn't realize even some of the things that she talked about. It's a, it's a, it makes it even more incredible that she's done so brilliantly well as an author. It must be so inspiring for people that struggle with dyslexia when they hear Sally's story. Well, I think the key is that there's a wonderful moment in the interview where she describes how that scene in I, Coriander evolved. It's magical. She's, she's a visuals first person. And if she can't see it, if she can't visualise it, then she doesn't bother writing it. And I think whatever your level of uh, dyslexia or, or, or what have you, whatever your level of writing, I think that being able to visualise something, being able to visualise a room, being able to block out the scene as characters move about, I think that's a really important skill to develop because it will just make your writing so much more vivid. And uh, it's it, that that moment, I'm going to listen back to that again and again because it's, it's like stepping inside her mind. It's just wonderful. Yeah, and um, you mentioned about that video as well about, about characters dancing on the screen. Um, I, I, again, I go back to just the incredible perseverance that someone must have to, to, to get to a point where they can write a book. I mean, it's, you know, for, for a lot of people with dyslexia, writing is just something which is such a huge challenge. They would never even imagine attempting something like that. But it sounds like through Sally's perseverance, she's, she's learned how to deal and cope with it. And, um, well, more than that. I mean, she's a Carnegie winner. She's a Costa well, winner. She right. sold two and a half million. You know, I mean, it's, yeah. it's an incredible story. I mean, the thing is, you know, what you need is a storytelling voice. And I think that's the thing, the other thing that came through this this interview. It's Writing isn't about spelling and grammar. It's about voice. You know, people who get hung up on punctuation and what have you, that's what pro writing aid is for you know that's, don't worry about that's what your copy editors are for you know your proofreaders are for the thing you need to develop more than anything is a unique and distinct voice and you do that through you know discovering yourself this is why you know we were saying we're getting these wonderful questions on the academy we're getting stuff that we've never heard before i think it's because the writing journey is a human journey it's a discovery of humanity your own identity and then putting it on the page and expressing yourself in that unique way you know it's all very well trying to write like other writers but until you can write with your own voice that's that's the key. That is absolutely the key. And it's it's a, such a big lesson to learn. It is. And we I remember just yesterday when we were doing the coaching in the academy that we were talking specifically about the struggles of confidence and not knowing at what point you kind of hit the ground running in terms of finding your voice, in terms of getting to that point where you think, you know, I do have something important to offer here. I really I'm really starting to believe that. That's that's almost the most important step where the author gets their own belief. And we reference back to Joanne, Joanna Harris, the, the, the third book, I believe she said it took her before she discovered her voice. But we were saying how important it is that book one and book two weren't a wasted opportunity. They were stepping stones to that really important milestone in her career. And um, so, you know, people are struggling with their voice. If people are out there thinking, you know, I still don't really know what my voice should be. Sometimes you just have to keep writing. Well, that's all you have to do. Ultimately, you have to keep writing to eventually know that you've discovered it or for someone to point out to you that you have it, <laughs> which is a, you know, um, so yeah, absolutely brilliant. One of the other things that Sally mentioned, which I found fascinating, and I've never heard this before, not in, not in writing. I've heard it in other areas like, um, like task management, for example, but writing in color. Yeah. You ever heard that before? No, that's great. I don't no, want to brilliant. use it now. 
<laughs> I think I'll use it as well because for me, I mean, I, I understand the benefits of using color when, for example, I have my kind of Kanban board, which is all of my tasks I've got, and I've got everything color coded by, yeah. um, by priority sometimes, or sometimes it's by projects or types of, you know, roles in my life. They're all color coded so I can see very clearly what's going on. But I love the idea of using color within writing because it's such a visually stimulating way of dividing up what you wrote when and and you know if you can also zoom out on a document i mean have you ever done that where you look at like your your word document as like you know 50 pages and you can actually start to kind of see some kind of color representation i wonder if this would also work for people who are switching characters Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things I have in Scrivener as well, isn't it? Where you can flag up certain characters and chapters in different colours and things like that. And certainly when uh, if you're outlining uh, with uh, postcards, you know, I've done it in the past where you'll have uh, a particular thread or story thread or character in one colour on a card. And, you know, so you can make the distinction just at a glance. You, you know, I find it quite useful after a first draft, you know, you look up and, and you just outline, you go, oh, OK, there's not enough of that. I need more of that. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a great, great tool. You know, it's uh, I think anything you can go word blind, you know, you can just lose sight of what's important and what's and just taking a step back and putting it in a different form can make all the difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'd like to hear actually from people who already do this or have different techniques of how they use color within their writing, because I think it's a fascinating area, which is really probably quite underdeveloped as, as a concept. So if you use color in your writing in any way, drop us a note and pop to the uh, website, bestsellerexperiment.com and click on the contact form to send me and Mark a, a note, or maybe pop over to the Facebook page or the Twitter page and let us know about how you use color in your writing. Cause I think there's a lot, there's a lot of other techniques and ideas out there that maybe we can share out there with the writing community. Now I know one other thing that you were really fascinated, Mark, um, when you're interviewing Sally was her use of visual visualization and visual writing. Um, so what, I mean, what was the, what was the biggest thing, biggest takeaway for you about, about how she writes visually? Uh, like I said, I think it's just that idea of being able to uh, step in, step into the scene essentially and uh, put yourself in the scene and think about that before you start uh, putting words on the page. I think that works in incredibly well. And it, again, I think it helps we've both had a theatre background because, you know, I, I started in theatre. I ran my own little theatre company. And um, you, it's, 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 it's not so much about just the location and the props and the chairs and the, and everything. It's where the characters are in the room, how they, they move around in the room, who is dominant, who is cowing, you know, who is... Uh, who is in charge, who is strident, who is meek. All of those little things can really make a difference when it comes to visualising the scene. And um, the other thing about the theatre background is, well, she's absolutely right. You, you know instantly if something is working just from the buzz you get from an audience, which is why, especially in these weird, dark times, we need to keep theatre alive. We need to you know, preserve theatre because it's such a great proving ground for any kind of storytelling you know you you put it right in front of the audience there and then you know if you're writing a novel you might not get feedback for days weeks months from your readers um, but if you're telling a story in front of uh, an audience you, boom you know immediately if it's working or not so yeah that kind of um visceral being in the moment 
that you get from visualization and, and theater really really informs my writing mm. and actually that whole idea of the instant feedback from the audience is really fascinating isn't it because in theater you know you don't know until you maybe do your dress rehearsal for example just how an audience are going to respond but in some ways you're like you're able to probably tweak and adapt if you think that there's something really fundamentally wrong with a scene, for example. Well, she told that, that, that story about Les Miserables, Drill yeah. Nun, you know. Yeah, and, exactly. And I, I, it, that's why you do those test runs. That's why you do uh, little... I, I've... Um, where we used to live in Epsom, we used to get a lot of comedians do their first runs down there. So I saw, um, saw Marcus Brigstock and um, Lee... What's his name? Lee, Lee Mack. Lee, no, no. Um, Evans. Lee Evans, thank you. Lee Evans, you know, this was the show that ended up at the O2 in mm. a tiny little theatre in Epsom. And he had paper, he had sheets of paper, and he'd be doing <laughs> routines. And when he didn't laugh, he'd go, then that's shit. Then he tossed that away. <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting because we, we were one of the first shows he did. And then we saw the thing on TV a year or so later. And it was like there were just a handful of jokes that made it all the way through to the O2. Wow. Most of the act had changed by then. And I think that was one of the great things. I, I love that about theatre because we would we'd do a show and we go, well, that's not working, is it? Let's let's tweak that. Or actually, we know this. Let's lean into that a bit more. And um, yeah, that is, it's, if you ever get a chance to do it, you should do it. Yeah, and, and actually, I think one of the most important things when we think about this in the writing world, the closest we can get to that as writers are, are that is that group of beta readers, and that's why we've included an entire course on beta readers in the academy because it's so huge. We found it was so so important for us. I mean, we were very lucky. We had a huge number of beta readers, really, in, in comparison to most people. We had like pushing nearly a hundred beta readers of our book. But if you are not using beta readers, you're missing out on loads and loads of different things, not just getting a test for your book before it goes out and finding a 3,000 typos or however many we, we were discovered by our readers. But you also learn something through the process of getting that feedback. It's one thing if you if you give it to one or two people and you get a few comments, but it's when you give it to a larger group of people, there's no denying the issues where you hear like 80% of the audience all coming back with the same feedback. So, and I know that beta reading is something which is, it's a big step for people to do. It's a lot of, it can be a lot of work. People say, well, how on earth do I get beta readers? How do I do that? I mean, in the academy, we're encouraging um, the, the, the academates, as we call them, to, to beta read each other's books, because that's also a great learning curve as a, as a writer to read other, other writers' works. But it's it's something that you really need to give a lot of thought to. But you can't do it. And this is the biggest learning point in the course is that you can't get your beta readers when you finish your book because it's too late by then. You're going to be itching to get it out. You have to start doing it early in the process, which is why it's one of the first courses we have, you know, before you even start writing is to start thinking and planning for your beta readers. So, again, another really important thing to think about and, and one that people aren't doing enough of. And that's, again, do it behind the scenes. Get all that dirty laundry washed before it goes on stage, you know? it's um, Because otherwise, like you say, it'll be in the public domain and you'll get all those terrible reviews on Goodreads and Amazon or wherever you want to get reviewed, you know, and that's the worst. And there's they're out there forever, trust me, you know, so you want to get it right. And in the case of beta readers coming back and absolutely loving your book and saying, this is brilliant, there's only a few things I would change, ideas, etc., what that can do is it can do incredible things for your confidence 
It can boost your confidence and you can go out into the world really believing that this could be the book for you. It could be the book that changes your life. Whereas so many authors doubt all of their work that without that positive feedback, they might not really go out into the world with that confidence, which is often the confidence you need to really make that book succeed. It's the confidence. Like if you're not going to be confident about your book, if you're not going to be out there banging the drum, um, then who who will? Why should anyone else get excited about your book if you're not going to get excited about it? So that can be a huge point for some people as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know with the Crow Folk, I've worked really hard on this. It's been through many readers, filters, editors, what have you. Um, I'm really proud of it. I've worked really hard. I kind of know it works. That doesn't mean it's a book for everyone. It's a book for a certain kind of reader, and that certain kind of reader, I think, is really, really going to enjoy it. Um, but yes, more of that in the coming weeks. Absolutely. Well, remind us when the publishing date for the book is. 4th of February, 2021. 4th of Feb. Fantastic stuff. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. Firstly, we should say thank you so much to Sally Gardner for, for giving us oh, that yeah. incredible interview, giving us some really interesting insights. Again, teaching us some new things that we'd never heard of before, which is why mm. we love this show so much. We show up for this show just like our listeners because we always learn something new. And and also massive congratulations to you, Mark, for getting your film, uh, well, the, the shooting of the film done. I know it's still another long journey until actually we get yep. to even watch it, but my goodness me, how fantastic that it's got through that crazy, yeah. crazy period of COVID. Yeah. There'll be some stories there's to just, tell about that There's a story coming episodes. about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Can't, I can't tell them now. No. Stay tuned. Those stay stories tuned, are coming. We'll, some, we'll be wow. talking all about the things that have been happening behind the scenes. <laughs> and um, and also, um, you know, massive congratulations to you, Mark, on your, your book deal. And Thank I, you. for one, will be absolutely cheering it all the way up the charts when it comes out thank you so much mate appreciate it brilliant stuff so thank you so much folks um we'll have another rerun next week and in we'll be back in two weeks if you'd like to get on the waiting list for the academy rush over now to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com if you'd like to get to support this show as a patron you pop over to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support and, uh, you know, come and say hi on social media. F uh, on Facebook, we're Bestseller Experiment. Twitter and Instagram, we're at Bestseller XP. Uh, a big thank you, as always, to our wonderful editors, Dave and JD. And see you next time. Brilliant. It's a goodbye from Mark 1. And a goodbye from Mark 2. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>